Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, well, I am weird. I'm aware of that. But it's okay. It's all right. I don't, I don't mind being a little weird. Um, it's, it's just, I love Sunday. Amen. I just do. Um, I know we get to worship every day of our lives. We're supposed to at least. But there's just something special about gathering together and worshiping. And so I can't wait to continue that aspect of uh, the, the musical aspect of the worship uh, here in just a minute. And keep in mind um, all parts of what we do on a Sunday morning. And it, that starts the moment you, you get in the car and you start coming this way. You're beginning to worship at that point in time. Uh, the conversations you have on the way here are a form of worship. The, the mindset that you're in when you walk into this room is a form of worship. The conversations you have with people you know and don't know as you're in this room and out there, it's a form of worship. And then you come in and you get to lift your voice as a form of worship. You get to open God's word as a form of worship. You get to pray. You get to partake of the elements of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us as a form of worship. You get the opportunity to give back to the one that's given us every single thing that we have as you leave today as a form of worship. I don't think we sometimes think worship is just singing. Ah, now that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the very beginning of it all. It's craziness. We, we've just started last week this, this new series, Questions That Jesus Asked. You see, great teachers ask great questions. And, and as I said last week, a lot of us have learned that that's a great way to learn, is by asking questions. Because when we ask those questions and answers are given, then these things are actually, actually physically created within our brains, these links. It's called learning. It's, it's, it's kind of an old process, but it still exists even to this day. If you ask the right questions, then it, it opens up opportunities that you didn't know existed. If you've ever asked the right question, you know what I'm talking about. Asking the right question can solve incredible mysteries. Maybe something as simple as finding your keys or your wallet this morning. Nobody's ever had that, okay? Maybe just me. Uh, asking the right question can start brand new relationships. Some of them lifelong relationships, haven't they? Some of you gentlemen asked the right question, and <laughs> she gave the right answer. <laughs> You're still surprised, I know. It's okay, so are we. It's amazing what questions can do, and that's why Jesus asked them. But sometimes as believers, we quit asking questions, and we just show up, and we try to absorb things, and that's how we learn, that's how we grow, and that's not what God wants us to do. We have to keep challenging ourselves in this world that we live in to become more and more and more like Jesus, to learn more about him and to live more like him. Did you ever think about this? It is impossible, impossible to know everything about God. There's absolutely no way that you can do it ever in this lifetime. Until we're in his presence one day, there will always be things that are left unknown to us. At this point, he has revealed to us all that we need to know to have a, a salvation-based relationship with him, to, to get our salvation, if you will, freely from him. It's incredible. For me, I love the mysterious part of our God. He's revealed enough, but the best is still yet to come. Did you know that? Did you know that all that we know about God, all that he provides for us, everything that he's done for us, everything he will do for you, the best of God is still yet to come when we're in his presence one day. No matter how good he is in this world, there's even better waiting on us in heaven. Don't ever forget that. His word has been given to us now to explore who he is and discover everything that he has chosen to reveal to us. But there's so much more. Don't ever be satisfied with what you think you know, because there's always more. There's always more. 
Jesus traveled throughout his three years of ministry. He, he encountered all kinds of people, all kinds of problems, and yes, all kinds of questions that were asked of him. Some of the questions were genuine. They were real. They were with great intent. People really wanting to know him more, more clearly. They wanted to know him more personally. They wanted to know him better. They really wanted a solution or a resolution to the issue that they were inquiring about while others were just asking in hopes of tripping him up, trying to discredit him and what he was teaching amongst the people that he was around. But for Jesus, it was more than just answering questions. He was rather fond of, of asking those questions as well. There's more than 300 recorded in the scriptures, but we know that not everything Jesus ever said and did was recorded. So it's impossible to know how many questions he actually asked. We have a great sample of them, all right? Jesus asked these questions in an attempt to help people learn more about him, to grow closer to him, and of course, learn more about his heavenly father as well. His questions helped unlock mysteries that surrounded his coming to this earth. The reason why he came, how he came, and even how he would ultimately depart. His questions led people back to the laws of Moses and then fully defined how he ultimately came to fulfill those laws of Moses. It's an incredible, incredible thing. So over the next few weeks, we're going to spend a few more weeks here asking these questions that Jesus asked. We're going to look at every one of them. We're going to look at the context of them. We're going to look at who he was talking to. Why on earth did he ask the question? Because Jesus already knows all the answers. So what was his motivation in asking the question? What answer might he have been hoping that he would receive from the people? And did he even get the answer that he was looking for? It's a fun little time to explore. But just as important, I want every single one of us to take the question that we study and go, okay, close my eyes. Jesus, ask me. Ask me that same question. How would I respond? Maybe within the context here of, of what that individual or group was going through, but maybe not. Maybe your context in your life right now. Jesus is asking us the question too. If we imagine him doing it, imagine how incredible that would be to have Jesus actually face-to-face -face look at you in the eye and ask you, some of these questions as if you were literally talking to him. And as I said last week, his words somehow magically teleport through space and time into your life right now as if he's directly talking to you through the Bible, as if the Bible is the word of God spoken to us. Because it is. It's not inappropriate to do that at all. This week, both the questions we're going to look at deal with very specific miracles. They are both birthed out of or going into a very specific miracle. Both are in chapter 5 of two different books, Mark and John. So you can stick your finger in Mark 5. That's where we'll be first. We'll be in John 5 later. Just hold your finger there. Perfect. You can easy to remember those things, all right? As you do that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a large, crowded room? where the people are just all around you. Maybe you were on a packed train or a bus, or maybe you've been on a mission trip and they shove so many people in that vehicle that you're really not sure if you're going to be able to breathe at all. I know some of us have been in that situation. Maybe you're in line at a large convention or at a sporting event and the people are pressing in all around you. Now, I know for some of you just thinking about those kinds of things, who, who's already a little me, just like, I don't like crowds and people and shoulder to shoulder. Some of you have that kind of feeling, right? People accidentally bump into you. They accidentally touch you in a variety of places. You got a couple choices. 
You might have looked back to see who it was. You might have even given them a really pleasant look. Or you might have just ignored it and pretended that it never happened. Depends on your personality and which you would do. That's exactly where we find Jesus in this next question. When he asks, let's set the scene. Jesus and his disciples have just returned from the other side of the Sea of Galilee where they've just healed this demon-possessed man. And when Jesus returns, there's a large crowd that's gathered to meet him. Almost literally, as soon as he gets off the boat on the shore, they're waiting for him. How did they know he's coming? I don't know these things, but somehow they've figured this out. He's approached immediately by what they call a synagogue leader, some kind of of legal person, some kind of legal legal type question-asking person of authority named Jairus. It says the man, position of authority, fell at the feet of Jesus. Why? He was pleading with Jesus. Somehow he believed that this Jesus that he'd heard of only could have the power to heal his daughter who was dying. Jesus, it says, immediately agrees and goes with him toward his house. If you pause there for just a moment, do you suppose that Jesus and Jairus just began a conversation and casually strolled toward the man's house as his daughter lies dying? Because I don't. I really believe there was a huge sense of urgency, at least in the man, but also in Jesus because he's sympathetic to the man. He knows what's going on in the man's life, and he wants to relieve that pain and that stress. And so as they're trying to leave, there's a crowd that has gathered around Jesus. Jairus wasn't the only one begging Jesus for help, you see. People are asking him questions. You can see the disciples If you're watching the series, The Chosen, then you can really envision this. You can see Peter up front, flanked by James and John and Andrew, trying to clear a path for Jesus and Jairus to get through to get to Jairus' house. Hopefully you can envision that. And as they're doing it, people are begging for help. They're asking questions. They're pressing in on Jesus. But the crowd, it, it presses in closer and closer and closer. His name is growing. His fame is growing. His power is being displayed all over. And people are starting to find out about it. They long to be close to him. And just as the crowd gets tight, he stops. And he turns around. And he goes... Who touched me? (laughs) Hopefully you got the build of the anticipation. And with that word, everybody's like, whoa, he speaks. (laughs) Who touched you? What's going on? Now, the people closest to Jesus said, this is ridiculous. Why are you asking this question, Jesus? I'm not going to call it stupid. It's Jesus. It's a ridiculous question. Everyone's touching you. Who didn't touch you, Jesus? Let's go. Why did you stop? We got to hurry and get to this man's house. We can't figure out who did it. Why did Jesus ask that question? Did he really not know who touched him? Of course he knew. He didn't just know. He knew the woman intimately. He created her, just like he knows each and every one of us in that same way. He knew the bleeding issue that she'd had the last 12 years of her life, just like he knows exactly what you and I are dealing with in this moment. He knows everything that we brought into this room with us this morning. He knows that she's used every last resource to try to be made well, just like he knows every attempt that you and I have made to try to fix things on our own, whatever it is. 
that we're going through. Jesus knows this woman is desperate. He knows that she has just recently heard of him. He knows the incredible faith that this woman has. Mark records that in chapter 5, verse 28. It says, she thought, if I just somehow touch this end of his clothes, then I think he can heal me. If I just touch him, he doesn't need to know who I am. He doesn't need to know what's going on. He doesn't need to talk to me. If I just touch him, he'll never even know. She was completely right, except about the know her part. You see, because he knew her really well, really, really well. He knew exactly who had touched him. So why? Why did he ask? He asked so that everyone else could know who touched him. The woman took this incredible risk. First of all, just by going out into public, she was unclean. She wasn't allowed to be in this group. Second of all, she took a risk by touching the rabbi, which also would make him ceremoniously unclean as well. Jesus asked because he wanted her to speak up. He wanted her story to be shared with everyone that was there. Imagine you are that woman. You know you have touched Jesus. You know why you did it, and you know that immediately, the second her finger touched the tip of his robe, she was healed. She knows that. She is now overwhelmed with emotion because her suffering has just ended, and quite honestly, probably the physical suffering was the least of her problems. She was an outcast. She was permanently unclean, rejected by society, even her own church, if you will. And now she's been made well by Jesus. So he looks around, waiting to see if she'll come forward. The text says in verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who, who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And he said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus asked the question so that her faith would be revealed. I'm going to pause there just for a second. We live in a world where a lot of Christians believe that their faith is private. I don't need to let anyone know my faith. It's personal faith. No, it's not. No, it's not. Jesus did not save you for you to keep it to yourself at all. As a matter of fact, if you feel that way, I'm questioning whether or not you're truly saved. Because if you're truly saved, you know why he saved you, and you know the passion you should have to save everyone else. (laughs) So keep that in mind. Please don't hear that as harsh. It's not at all. It's the motive of this question. His power was on display through his faith. Really, what did Jesus do in this scene? He walked. (laughs) He walked. Her faith healed her. Yeah. Do we have that kind of faith? Have any of us ever reached out to Jesus before? Has he healed you? Has he forgiven you? Has he restored you? Has he brought you peace? Has he given you hope? If he has, if he has, and I'm telling you truthfully today, right now, that he is asking you, hey, yeah, did I touch you? I think I did. So um, let's talk. Let's talk. He might just want you. No, he does. He absolutely wants you to step forward and share exactly the work he has done in your life, to share your story publicly with others. It doesn't have to be in the masses, 
but to share it publicly with others just like this woman. You see, when you share your story, it points other people to him, to see his power at work within you. It will draw others into his presence as they hear your experience. Jesus' question was so simple. Who touched me? But look at what he revealed through that question and then her answer. You'll notice that it doesn't say Jesus healed anybody else in that group, answered anybody else's questions in that group, did anything with anyone else in that group. But do you think everybody walked away from that group going, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, I get it. I believe there were other people within that group that was healed because they saw what happened, they had faith, and just like that, their faith healed them as well. And they never even had that personal interaction with Jesus. The same could be said if you share your story today. The woman wanted to get well. Who wouldn't, right? Who wouldn't? Well, that leads us perfectly into that very question because Jesus asked that question of someone. This is the one found in John chapter 5. Go ahead, turn there if you're not already, if you didn't put your finger there earlier. Bible's under the chairs if you need them. This account is very, very short, just a few short verses. It gets right to the point. But the question that Jesus asks this man is so profound and so incredibly relevant for the culture and the world in which we live today because so many people at least claim they don't see anything wrong. They don't want to be made well. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the Jewish festivals, and on his way, he enters the city. He stops by the pool of Bethesda. What on earth is the pool of Bethesda? That's a great question. It's a great question. There are debates about its exact origins. It certainly could have and probably was what's called an ancient Jewish mikvah. It was a pool that they used for Jewish cleansing rituals. Go figure. The Jewish faith involved cleansing with water. So foreign to the Christian idea, isn't it? Strange how that works. It was a place used for those ceremonial Jewish cleansings. Regardless of that, we're pretty certain of what it had become. The Greek culture had created really what was a cult around the Greek god Asclepius, the pagan god of healing. During the Hellenistic period, the time when the the Greeks ruled the world, if you will, they built these things called Asclepions all over the Greek empire. They were healing centers. The ill, the disabled, they would congregate at these regional healing centers around these these, uh, cities. They would drink, they would bathe in the waters of the Asclepion, they would sleep on mats within the temple walls. Does that sound like this man's story that we're about to read, if you know it? Sure does. In simple terms, the Greeks attributed the healing powers of the natural springs to spirits. The temples were typically built near these ancient pools or baths, some of them already used by some other religion, but they took it. The participants would wait by the water, they would pray, they would fast, they would chant until Asclepius or one of his helpful serpent spirits, as they were called, churned the water. It's the best time for the healing miracle, they thought. When the bubbles or ripples made their way from the spring to the actual pool itself. So there's this association between divine healing and the sacred water activity. This was what this was all based around. This was a cultural staple throughout the entire Greek world. Yes, the Romans ruled during Jesus' day, but they were just the the ancestors, if you will, of the Greeks. They're the ones that came into power next. This was all found in in an article by a a thing called Drive Through History. If you're familiar with Right Now Media, I'll have to mention that some Sunday since you all have free access to it. there's videos that describe these things, take you to these places and see them. It's, it's super cool. You should watch them. For years, though, scholars thought this miracle, this was one of the many reasons why they didn't believe a lot of Jesus' stuff, was this miracle is impossible. This place doesn't exist. We couldn't find any archaeological evidence that the place that John described existed. Here's the problem. Uh, the, the disciples went into way too much detail about things. 
You see, when you're lying, you kind of just make things up. You use real generic things so that anything could possibly work to fit the descriptions that you're putting on paper. The disciples didn't do that. They used very specific details that had to have been true, or why would they make up these incredible lies? So this miracle was discarded as that probably never really happened, just John making things up. But in 1956, a pool that matched the exact description in the book of John was discovered on that end of Jerusalem. All five columns were still in existence, confirming John's description, and that's where we find the man lying in John chapter 5, waiting by the pool for a chance to be healed. Let's read the text. Here we go. John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. There, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, who, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. I want to first point out that John writes something interesting here in this description. Clearly, John was with him as he walked in, and he observed what was going on. And he says there was a great number of disabled people lying all around. The question for us is, which one of them looked to Jesus as he came in? Not a single one even noticed his presence. These people were in the most desperate situation possible, and yet none of them had eyes with which to see the healer who just walked in the room. Quote, a blindness had overcome these people at the pool. There they were, and there was Christ who could heal them. But not a single one of them sought him. Their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be troubled. They were so taken up with their own chosen way that the true way was neglected. Now, that was written by Charles Spurgeon a long time ago, but I want you to think of that quote in the text context of today in which we live. All of those around us hurting, suffering, in need of healing physically, sure, emotionally, but most importantly, spiritual healing. While Jesus stands right here, right now, offering the cure. I want you to hear that quote again, but rethink of it now. You thought we were talking about people in ancient Israel. We're not. We're talking about people today. A blindness has overcome the people in this world. There they are. Here's Christ who could heal them. But not a single one of them sought him. Their eyes are fixed on the world, expecting it to heal them. They were so taken up by the ways that they have chosen that the true way was often, is often completely neglected. Is that not the story of the world in which we live? They don't even know he exists. This man, an invalid for 38 years, we don't know. It could have been his whole life. Maybe not. Regardless, it seems as if he could walk at some point in time, but he hasn't been able to for a very long time. He's been an outcast by society. He couldn't work. He couldn't obtain food on his own. It doesn't seem as if he has any family to help carry him around or help him out in any way. We have no idea how long this man has been lying by this pool at all, waiting to be healed. And I ask, if you'd been waiting 38 years to be healed, and this is what you've resorted to, lying by a pool that you have no hopes of getting into, what would be going through your mind? What hope would you have in your life ever improving? There's no indication in this text that this man has any idea whatsoever what Jesus is capable of or even who he is. Contrast that with the last question. A woman who came to Jesus thinking, if I can just touch the tip of his robe, it will heal me. Compare that to the man that has no idea Jesus even exists. Yet, what does Jesus do for both? 
Consider that, would you? Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Do, do you want to get well? Jesus was full of compassion for this man. He knew every detail of this man's suffering. He knew the man's greatest need. Now, what do you suppose that was? Now, the world, of course, would immediately say, well, clearly to be healed, right? The ability to walk. That's really what he needed, a new chance at life. Well, Jesus might agree with that part. What a gift would that be? But there's a greater need that the man had, and in fact, it's the exact same need that each and every one of us share. You might say, I don't have anything in common with that invalid for 38 years. Oh, yes, we do. His greatest need is absolutely no different than my greatest need. So Jesus asks him a question that seems really easy and really obvious to answer. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to get well? (laughs) Of course, right? Who wouldn't want to get well? However, It's possible Jesus' motivation in asking this question could have been because he saw the look on the man's face, and he knew that the man had absolutely no hope of ever being made well. Jesus knew the innermost desires of that man, just like he knows ours. But the man's present reality was probably more than the man could possibly see past. Listen to the man's reply. He clearly has absolutely no idea who he is talking to. Sir, the invalid replied, I've got no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down and gets in in front of me. I don't have any hope for getting in this pool. Oh, the man had great faith in the pool. The rumors that it convinced people that there was power in that water. He was convinced that his condition prevented him from ever being the first one in, so therefore he could not receive the healing. Did you notice something there? He didn't answer Jesus' question. Not even a little bit. Not even a hint of an answer. Oh, he gave some great excuses. Great excuses as to why he couldn't be healed, but he didn't ask the question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to get well? Does that sound like any of us? (laughs) We complain to God about our circumstances. We give him excuses out the wazoo as to why we can't be healed, if you will. Why we're still in the same place spiritually, emotionally, year after year after year. Perhaps, just perhaps, he's asking us the same question today. Do you want to get well? I actually literally deliberated getting down off the stage and walking around and looking people. Do you want to get well? Because Jesus asked, I'm not Jesus, but I'm telling you, he asks that same question of each and every one of us today. Do you really want to get well? Do you want to move forward spiritually in your life? Do you want to make progress emotionally in your life? Do you want to go to a new place where God is all that you need and not let the situation that you are in define you? Instead, what if we were to say, you know what, God, that's a good question. Do I want to get well? You know, Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yes, I do want to be made well. You see, Jesus had to build this man's faith up because right now he believed in the pool and that was it. He didn't even know Jesus existed. Some might say that this man's faith didn't exist at all until Jesus speaks these next words in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked away. Can I tell you something real quick about that? What just happened is impossible. Completely, completely, and totally impossible. At least for this man. 
He's been an invalid for 38 years. If any of you have ever spent time, say, in a hospital bed or down because of injury, in a week you can't walk. A week. 38 years this man has been an invalid. His body, his muscles, his mind doesn't even remember how to walk. So Jesus told you, do something that's impossible. I just want you to do something completely impossible. There's no way you can do it, so do it. That's all he did. There's no way you could get up, pick up his mat, and walk away unless, unless for some strange reason he believed and trusted the man that was commanding him to do so. If this invalid believed the words that Jesus spoke, then his muscles, his brain, his mind doesn't need to know how to walk <laughs> because his creator provided the how-to. You don't worry about a thing, just do it. There's a lesson there for us. Now, the man still didn't verbally answer Jesus' question, do you want to be made well? But his faith and then his actions proved that he did want to get well. His faith in the words that this strange man spoke prompted him to believe that he could, in fact, stand up, pick up his mat, and walk away. His faith that this man somehow could make the impossible happen. I don't know if you thought about the transformation that had to exist in that man's mind. Jesus asks him a question. He gives an excuse, and Jesus says, uh, I hear your excuse. Get up, walk away. And he's like, okay, and he does it. It happened that fast. It went from, I don't have a clue who you are. I don't believe anything. I, don't, I think that water can hear me to saying, I believe the word you just spoke to me, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm just going to do it. Is that your first reaction when Jesus asks you to do the impossible? When Jesus asks you to do something that's completely impossible, is your first reaction like, mm, okay, let's go. Is it? Because it's not mine. <laughs> Mine's like, well, now, Jesus, are you sure about that? Because I, you know, we could pray about this for a while. It'd be good. Maybe I should study a little longer. I think maybe you could prepare me for the thing you're asking me to do. If Jesus asks you to do something, do you instinctively get up and follow his lead? Or do you think, you know, I can't do that. I'm not all that good at that. Jesus, I'm not really comfortable with that. Jesus, I'll be really honest. I don't want to do that. Maybe, Jesus, I, I just don't have the time, Jesus, to do that. I appreciate you asking me. You know, that man could have said that. You know, Jesus, I really like the mat. I like hanging out here. These people, these are my people. I love it here. I'm good. Thanks anyway. He could have done that. He didn't. Will you and I instead today be prompted by faith? The same faith that that woman touched the edge of his robe with, the same faith that caused that man to just hear his words and go, mm, okay. <laughs> faith that Jesus will provide the way forward when you agree and you follow him. He will allow you to do the impossible. Do you understand that? He alone will allow you to do the uncomfortable, the hard things when our faith is fully in him. May our response to his question be, Lord Jesus, I want you. I want you to open my eyes and my mind to see and to know who you are. I want you to open my ears to hear your voice to heal my legs so I can follow you, to heal my heart so I can love you more. What is it that Jesus has commanded you to do? What is that impossible thing that Jesus has asked you to do? Do you want to get well? <laughs> Will you get up and follow him? Will you get up and share your story because he has healed you, he has redeemed you, he has saved you? Will you share your story. He's asking you to do just that today. 
Father God, as we transition into a time of reflection upon the gift, the sacrifice that you made, as we transition into a time where we're going to lift our voices once again, may our thoughts and our minds be thinking about how you ask us to do the impossible, and yet we, we refuse to get up off our mat and walk. We refuse to follow you. May today be the day that our choice is changed, that our opinion, our attitude is changed, and as you ask us to do the impossible, maybe even the unthinkable, the uncomfortable, the difficult thing, may our response be, yes, Lord, I want to be made well. Yes, Lord, I want to follow your lead. Yes, Lord, I don't know how. That man did not know how to walk. He didn't have a clue. And allow you to provide the how-to part. Father, if there's someone in our midst that has a story that needs to be shared, I pray that they are willing to share it with us. They don't know. We don't know who that story could impact. We don't know whose eternity could be changed. We don't know who is suffering through the exact same life experience right now. And all they need, all they need is a little encouragement. Maybe they come here this morning praying, God, just give me some encouragement today. And their story is the one. And you're asking them, hey, was it you? Did you touch me? I pray that they're willing to share. Father, we love you. We thank you for your presence in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray.